You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Good morning, church. It is such a joy to gather in and around the name of Christ this morning as we worship him. Before we do so, we have seen light in the, the narrative account, Luke's gospel. Uh, and light doesn't come from within us, but outside of us. So to that end, let us pray and ask that God would grant for us to see light, for us to understand what it is that he has to share with us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are dependent upon you. Lord, if we've learned anything in Luke, it's that we are in the dark apart from you. And you, yourself, you not only provide light, you are light. In you is light and life. Lord, would you lead us and would you guide us In the truth of your word this morning, God, would we see light? Would we see Christ? Would we not only see Christ, but would we savor him and worship him? Would you displace all other competing affections in our minds and hearts? Would you alone do that work? We cannot do that on our own. Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, that you would speak to your people by your word through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would boast in nothing except Christ, that we would boast in nothing except your strength, which is displayed in such meager means. Lord, we ask that you'd be magnified, Christ, would you be glorified? And we do magnify your name now. We pray this all. In Christ's holy name. Amen. Would you join me and stand for the reading of God's word? As we continue our series, we find again, here in Luke's account, another song. We started with Mary's song, Mary's Magnificat, as she magnified the Lord in her soul and spoke and declared and sung of the great mercy of God. And we we saw Zechariah's song in Benedictus, this prophecy where he blesses God most high. And this morning, we now get to lean in and peer in on this wonderful scene in the field with the shepherds where the angels cry out, glory to God most high. And so let's read the verses surrounding this song in Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 20, uh, pardon me, verse 1. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, And the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Beloved, this is God's holy word to us. You may be seated. Looks can be deceiving. Right? Looks can be deceiving. We see this reality all around us in creation. We see it with the moon. The moon is always round. It's always full. But from our vantage point, it doesn't seem to be the case. The reflections and the different stages of the moon wane and wax throughout the month. We see this in creation in the ocean. Every time I step into the water, I'm confronted again with this reality that looks can be deceiving. Currents are stronger than I think. Riptides pull out deeper than I would imagine. When I was about 15 years old, I went to Seal Beach, uh, which is where I grew up. And on the south side of the pier, you may not know, Uh, But during the winter time, with north swells, it gets massive. And these waves break right on the sand, about 10 feet away from the shore. And actually, 
this is has been historically a problem for Seal Beach to the point where they build this berm, this wall of sand on the south side of the pier so that the water doesn't flood into all the houses. And so me being naive and giddy about waves, I, I jump into the water with my friends and I have a rude awakening. And the first wave I catch just completely obliterates me and humbles me and leaves my face scratching against the bottom of the sand under the water, right? Looks can be deceiving. And as we turn to Luke chapter 2, our text before us this morning, we see this meager birth in Bethlehem. This is a scene of humility. This is a scene of meager circumstances, And yet, what we see is that looks can be deceiving. What we see in this text is the things that seem strong and powerful are actually not powerful at all, but weak. And the things which seem on the outside, from outside appearances, the things which seem to be weak are actually strength, the true strength of God. And so what Luke is arguing, what Luke is putting before us, the thrust of what Luke is saying, and therefore the thrust of what I'm saying this morning, is this, church. Boast in the power of God, displayed through meager means. Boast in the power of God, displayed through meager means. Let's now dive into our text this morning. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. In these days, at the time of Christ's birth, Rome was the superpower of the world. Rome was in charge. There wasn't a corner of Palestine that wasn't governed and overseen by Rome. Rome's reach was expansive. And we see this in the very first verse. Luke says, a decree went out to all the world. This is a way of saying that Rome had control and basically was the world at this time. Even Judaism and all the long-standing traditions were subject to the, to, the, to the rule and to the dominion of Rome. It's hard for us to understand, but when we jump into this text, this is so important. This provides for us the setting, the backdrop behind all of the events that unfold. As scholar J. Julius Scott writes, Roman government, organization, law, money, Taxation, culture, religion, army, and demands were everywhere. And here in the opening verses of our text, we see Rome's reach and power throughout the land. Caesar Augustus, the emperor, the one on the throne, he sends out a decree, declares an edict that all the world should be registered, that all the world should be counted. Everyone, all, every subject within his kingdom should be counted for a census. 
And this census, the purpose of this was to count how many people were in his reach and scope so that Rome could receive taxes from the people. So surprise, surprise, Caesar Augustus says, show me the money. And such taxes would ensure that everything within the, re- the reach and scope of the Roman Empire was secure and prosperous. But this was at the expense of the people. Verse 3. All went to be registered, each to his own town. Like a puppeteer, Caesar Augustus and the governor Quirinius order and administer that everyone goes to their origin of birth. The power of Rome ordering an edict just like that. And everyone is scattered throughout the land. And so Joseph and Mary, his betrothed, his fiance, so to speak, they start the journey back home to Bethlehem where Joseph is originally from. But we have to realize how arduous and difficult this journey must have been, especially for a pregnant wife who is ready to give birth. My hometown is 16 miles away, and I love the drive home. It takes about 30 minutes. I hop on PCH, and I check out all of the surf spots from Newport to Huntington, to Bolsa Chica, and then I finally get to Seal Beach. It's one of my favorite drives. It only takes 30 minutes. But for Joseph and Mary, this is no cruise down PCH. This is 90 miles on foot, on camel, with a pregnant wife who is ready to give birth. This would have not been a cruise at all. This would have been arduous and difficult. And so they finally arrive at Bethlehem. They finally arrive to be registered. And we know what happens next. Look with me at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. We're so familiar with this story, with this nativity scene. We hear it every Advent, and it's wonderful. We see the humility of Christ's birth. We see the meager circumstances. But this comes to the surface all the more, especially since all that we have seen in Luke's account with these songs of Advent. In Mary's song in Chapter 1, verse 51, Mary says that God has shown strength with his arm. That God, in verse 52, has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Strength, might. And then Zechariah, in his song, in his benedictus, his prophecy, he declares salvation from enemies, redemption to God's people, deliverance, strength, might, power, this epic imagery about the sunrise peeking over and light flooding into the land for everyone who sits in darkness and in the shadow of death. And then we turn the page and we are here in Bethlehem. This meager scene. 
And we might even be tempted to say, this doesn't match at all what we just saw. Where This is a disconnect. All of this glorious promise of might and strength and salvation. We turn the page and we're here in Bethlehem. This deliverer, this king from the line of David is a frail little baby. And not only is he a baby, but they get to Bethlehem and there's no guest room available for them. And so they lay him in the only place that they see fit This manger, this feeding trough where animals would slop around their food. This is the deliverer. This is where he is laid. And we know there's so much more behind the incarnation, behind the birth of Christ. Even before this text, we see in chapter 1, the angel Gabriel say to Mary, This is no ordinary birth. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. This virgin conception by the Holy Spirit of God. So we know that there is something so miraculous and unique about what's going on here. But from outward appearances, it just looks so meek and weak and humble. And especially in light of how the passage opens with the power and prominence of Rome. Rome is ordering like like a chess game, ordering its pawns to go and move here and there, right? Everyone at the subject of Rome. We see Caesar flex his arm, and then there's this baby, this this helpless little babe laying in a manger, fully dependent upon his mother for sustenance and life. These are meager means. However, church, we do not look to the things which are seen, but to the things that are unseen and eternal. And as we turn again to the next verse, verse 8, we see this glimpse of heaven rend open, and we see the things unseen. Look with me, church, at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. What happens in this field is nothing short of glorious and it follows a typical biblical pattern when God manifests his glory or when God sends an angel to send a message to his people. It's a typical pattern. This glorious scene, the glory of the Lord shone in this field. And subsequently, the shepherds, they're fearful. They're trembling. They don't know what to say or do. We see this same pattern with Moses when he encounters God in Exodus 3. He's in fear and awe and he takes his sandals off because he's in the very presence of God. We see the same pattern with Joshua in Joshua 5 as he encounters the commander of the, the Lord's army. This mighty angel, he's, he's fearful and he, he's trembling. And even Zechariah in chapter 1, when he's in the temple, when the angel Gabriel appears to him, Zechariah is undone. He doesn't know what to do. 
But there also is a typical pattern, and it's the response of what God or his messengers say to his fearful people. In response, in verse 10, the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The glory of the Lord is shining in this field. And so are these words that the angel declares and speaks to these shepherds in the field. God manifests his power in both sight and speech. Good news of great joy. A savior is born in the city of David from the line of David, the true king of Israel. And not only is this savior, the deliverer and the long awaited Messiah, but Christ is the Lord. This is God in the flesh. This is Emmanuel, God with us. There is none like this one. But God's display of might and power in this field, it actually gets turned up. It gets turned up to volume 10 as we keep reading. Verse 13, And suddenly, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And this is the angel's gloria. This is the angel's song of glory to God. And it's not enough for just one angel to appear and to shine and emanate the very glory of God, but a whole host of angels, a multitude. Host literally means army. Multitude is a number that cannot be counted. This army, this multitude of heavenly beings in unison, in one chorus singing, glory to God, most high, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. As German theologian John Bengel said, ironically, it's an army announcing peace. And the angel's song is short and sweet. Glory to God, most high in heaven and on earth, peace with those he is pleased to dwell and save. So to summarize, this scene in the field is a massive display of God's glory of light, literally light emanating in this display and light emanating from this speech. Good news, great joy, salvation from the line of David, this long-awaited rescuer. And actually, this isn't an isolated incident. Sometimes we could think of the shepherds in the field as, as this moment, but we cannot isolate it from what just happened in previous verses. This is commentary on what just happened. This is interpretation. 
and a key for us to interpret the events that happened in Bethlehem. Verse 12, the angel says, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This glorious scene is commentary on the humble and weak and meager birth of Christ in this nativity scene in Bethlehem. The power and might displayed in the field is literally shedding light on what just happened. All power and dominion be to God over this little baby in swaddling cloths. Strength and honor and incessant worship of God in the heavenly places from the army of angels over this little one, this little less than 10 pound newborn baby who is fully dependent on Mary for life and sustenance and on God for life. Therefore, we discover in this narrative, in this account, that God's mighty arm of salvation is flexed through weakness. God's mighty arm of salvation and deliverance is actually flexed and displayed and manifested through weak and meager means. And the world didn't see this coming because this is a paradox. It's a paradox. A paradox is an apparent contradiction. It seems like a contradiction, but it's not. But the world sees this and says, strength through weakness? No. Strength through strength. This is Rome's approach. Rome, the superpower, is ordering and demanding compliance from its subjects to bring about peace. Meanwhile, the God and ruler of the entire universe brings about true peace by laying down his power. Even this scene, the angels don't appear in the courts and palace of Rome, but to these shepherds in the field, these nobodies, these outcasts, Strength through weakness. And this is how God has ordained for salvation to actually be accomplished. When I was living at my parents' house growing up, uh, it was that time of year. And at our house, we had a ton of butterflies. We had a ton of caterpillars, and then the caterpillars turned into cocoons everywhere, and then butterflies everywhere. And I remember right next to the doorbell, there was this little caterpillar that set up shop right next to the doorbell. And it was this little cocoon. And every day I would come to the door and I would inevitably check in on the little guy. I think I even named him. I can't remember his name, but I would, I would just say, okay, there you are again, right? And one day I got to the door and this little thing was just wriggling around like crazy. It looked like some sort of uh, camper in an REI sleeping bag, just wriggling around. And I just watched, and I waited, and I got to see one of the coolest things I've ever seen. This caterpillar come out and break out of its cocoon, and it wasn't a caterpillar. 
It was a butterfly with what looked like two scrolls on each side of its body that unraveled and it just flew away. And I got to witness that. And we know the the transformational beauty of butterflies. But what you may not be aware of is that butterflies, before they become butterflies, they actually die in the cocoon. They turn into this soupy matter. They decompose, and it's from this soupy matter which form the building blocks for which this transformation happens. Strength through weakness. And this is the picture of Bethlehem. Power, might, God's strong arm of salvation and deliverance. Glory to God in the highest. Through this little scene, this baby laying in a feeding trough. This is the paradox of the birth of Christ at Bethlehem. And this is the paradox of the death of Christ at Calvary. This is the paradox, the apparent contradiction of Christ's birth in Bethlehem. And this is the paradox of Christ's death at Calvary. In the wisdom and power of God, Christ was crucified. He was crushed at the cross to actually bring about life. He was, as we saw in our text last week from Isaiah, he was smitten by God, afflicted and crushed and pierced through for our transgressions so that we would be forgiven of our transgressions by faith in him. Life, resurrection through death. And this is why Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 13:4 for he Christ was crucified in weakness he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God weakness and crucifixion as a means of resurrection and life and so these shepherds in this scene after the angels depart They say, it's actually pretty comical. They say, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Of course you would go and see what just happened, right? And they run. The text says they go with haste. They run and they see this scene. They see this baby laying in a feeding trough. They see Mary and Joseph and they tell them everything that the angels declared to them. They tell them of this scene that they just saw in the field. And as they go away from that place, the text says in verse 20, they returned glorifying and praising God for all that they heard and seen as it had been told them. And so we follow the shepherd's footsteps we follow their example. We come to this scene in Bethany, we, Bethlehem. We come to this scene at the cross. Utter humility. Weakness. Crucifixion. But we go away rejoicing because we know that these are the means by which God flexes his power 
and strength. Life, resurrection. And so my question for you this morning is, what are you boasting in? What are you boasting in this morning? Are you trusting in the weakness, the humility, the meager circumstance of this birth narrative of Christ, of his crucifixion, which lead and give way to life? Or are you trusting in something else that seems stronger to you? I assure you, according to Christ and according to his holy word, there's nothing stronger. And church, we know this to be true. We know that weakness is the way. We know that weakness, that humility, that crucifixion give way to resurrection and life. We've, we've signed the statement of faith. We know this to be true and to assent to this intellectually, doctrinally, but how difficult, oh, how difficult is this to believe in our own lives? That weakness is actually the way to strength. We love and we boast in Christ crucified. Oh, but we hate our own weakness. And you know the feeling. It's that sinking feeling in your gut when you just feel numb because you know you're inadequate and you know that you are weak in and of your own strength. That responsibility at work falls on you, that challenging new task, and you just feel like you can't do it. There's no way. Or maybe the Lord has put someone in your path to minister to, to help, but you just feel spent, completely spent of all energy and resources. Or maybe that's you. Maybe you feel like you're at the end of your rope. Maybe you feel like you have nothing left in your body, that your body is breaking down and you're feeling the frailty of this body of death, as Paul would say. This is life. This is where we live. This isn't just an ancillary and random moment here and there. This is where we live. This is what it means to be a creature. To not be self-sufficient like God who has no needs. But we are not God. We are creatures of need. And we are weak. And so what do we do? What do we do with this weakness? You can run from it. You can deny it. You can hide from it. But what God is actually compelling all of us to do is lean into it. To embrace weakness. Not because we love weakness in and of itself, but because it's, it's a conduit. It's the means by which the strength and power of God is made manifest in our lives. This is what we see in Luke 2. This is what we see in his crucifixion, that it's all leading to life, to resurrection, to actual power. Not power like Rome, but actual power. 
the Apostle Paul was also very aware with his frailty and suffered in his body in what he called a thorn in the flesh, this incessant reminder of his own weakness as he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he, Christ, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul is saying is not that he loves weakness in and of itself. He actually pleaded and asked the Lord to take it away. And I think that's good and right. And the Lord gave him something even better, his grace, which is sufficient in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, of grieving, of loss, of sorrow, of complete what seems like hopelessness. This is where hope rises. It's when we give up on horses and chariots because they don't deliver. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This is true strength. And a watching world gets to witness this paradox. A watching Rome, so to speak, gets to, gets to lean in and witness this paradox in our own lives and says, what's going on? Why are you boasting in your weakness? To which we get to respond, looks can be deceiving. I boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When I am weak, then I am strong. This is true strength. And this is the scene in Bethlehem. May God by his grace, give us strength in our own weakness to actually see Luke 2 for what it is, true strength, true might, true power and salvation. May God give us strength to see the crucifixion for what it actually is, true resurrection power. And may God give us grace and strength to see our own weaknesses, not as dead ends of weakness, but actually avenues for God's glory, avenues for his strength to be made known. When I am weak, then I am strong.